0: Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast rated one of the 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by the Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions that is trying to lead the way in the development of green and sustainable finance and as part of that we have this podcast series where we speak to and learn from and share information from some of the leading global figures in the field. Hello, my name's Andy Sloan, I'm Deputy Chief Executive Strategy at Guernsey Finance, the promotional body for Guernsey's finance sector, and Chairman of our Sustainable Finance Initiative, Guernsey Green Finance. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by, none other than, Professor Michael Manelli, Chairman of ZEN, uh, who's also Sheriff of the City of London, uh, Emeritus Gresham Professor of Commerce at Gresham College, and he is the founder of the Long Finance Initiative. Uh, An an incredible uh, CV, and it's it's such an honour to be joined by you this morning, Michael. Uh, Really looking forward um, to having a a discussion about green finance. Good morning. Hello. How are you?
1: Well, good morning, Andy, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here. I'm I'm very impressed with the work that's been done at Guernsey, and uh, I'm hoping we can cover some of that this morning.
0: Yeah, uh, me too. I I really do hope so. Um, I mean, it genuinely, is great to have you join us. Obviously, you're you know, founder of ZEN, and you, ZEN, and themselves have the Guernsey Green Finance Index that you've been doing for many years now, um, which has become pretty much a, a sort of a, a lodestar, I think, in terms of measuring the development of, of green sustainable finance. It's something that I know that you call an underarm delivery, uh, in my sort of supporting vernacular. Um, just to ask you what you think in this year of COP26, with it looming over the horizon, what, for you, are the key takeaways of the year so far? We're only you know, just a third of the way through it. Um, and what do you think might be coming over the horizon um, You know, this year? You know, in, in a nutshell, where, where do you think sustainable finance is going?
1: Well, thank you, Andy. As you know, our firm produces a number of indices, uh, and these began with the Global Financial Centres Index back around 2005. That's now in its 30th edition. We've been tracking green finance for some time. But we broke out a separate Green Finance Index, the Global Green Finance Index, uh, approximately four years ago. And that has developed, and we're now, in fact, working on edition number eight. But uh, GGFI 7, as I refer to it, our seventh edition, uh, came out last month. And it did, in fact, I think, give probably the biggest takeaway of the year. And that is the enormous rise around the world in the interest in green finance, And in particular, I would point to Asia. One of the things that's intriguing to me has been how Asia has really soared in such a short period of time. Green finance is now embedded in core. One could have argued, I think in some of our previous editions, that green finance was a Western European affectation because the leading centers were uh, Zurich, Geneva, London, Copenhagen, Amsterdam, Uh, and they are still leading. But the range is really tightened. the top 10 centers are now separated by 29 points on a 1,000-point scale. And just in the last edition, that was 51 points. So you can see green interest rising enormously. You can see a tightening of it. And you can see that every center is focusing on green. On the other hand, uh, you mentioned COP 26. Of course, in some ways, it's a little bit depressing that green finance seems to be being driven by politics and not by underlying economic forces. But I think we can probably come to that in a moment or two.
0: Indeed, Michael, let's leave the politics aside just for the moment. But in, you know, you, you just said that in terms of one of the big takeaways for you is the internationalisation of uh, green finance. But I think um, both of you and I know that the Chinese uh, have very much been at the forefront of the development, and I've had the good fortune, or uh, the honor, actually, of, of my work with the UN to um, have been to explained by May Young how uh, that China put uh, TCFD effectively on the agenda uh, three times at the G20 to, you know, to effectively to make sure people read the report and, and acted. Um, and sort of... You know, it's, it's sort of ironic that, in that respect, to talk about the, the, the Asian movement, but um, it's almost like coming full circle. I wonder if you maybe comment on that. And again, on the international side, sort of slightly going off, not off piece, but you know, on, on topic, but slightly off piece. Uh, you know, movements on the, you know, the Americans over the last uh, few months.
1: Well, Andy, I, I'm glad that you're uh, focusing uh, attention on China and, in fact, Asia in its widest sense. We have seen over the last 18 months to two years. Numerous announcements uh, across Asia on green finance and also meeting green targets. And so I don't want to fixate on China. I would equally compliment uh, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, and many other nations. But China, of course, is, is big. Uh, it is the gorilla in the room. And, and it is really moving quite seriously. I often find that uh, I've traveled in China since uh, 1983. People don't understand to some degree the depth of Chinese sincerity. About the environment. It's just that they've had a very tough time. Uh, I certainly recall seeing a number of signs about green starting around 1990. Uh, This had a lot to do with uh, the environment in terms of water quality, uh, other forms of pollution, landfill, what have you, but also uh, in terms of just having green sky, uh, sorry, blue skies. I recall sitting next to a couple of premiers at uh, various dinners, and they would remark to me that they wanted to see blue skies again, as blue as they saw in the West when they traveled. So there's a lot of sincerity there in China. Uh, and uh, this year, uh, China announced on the 1st of February, widely presaged, it was going to uh, the introduction of a national emissions trading system. And that is due to take uh, form uh, next month, June and July. We should be learning a lot more about it. It's due to be implemented uh, by the end of the year. And in fact, there are uh, regional emissions trading systems already. So China is now barreling ahead in, in a really uh, wonderful and supportive way. And whilst we could have some discussions about various regimes and, uh, and the, the sort of regime that we might like to wish, uh, wish to live under, Nevertheless, under China's 14th five-year plan, they have some very hard targets. And This plan just came out, and it's talking about CO2, permit, CO2 emissions dropping by 18% per unit of GDP, energy consumption by 13.5% per unit of GDP, forestry coverage due to increase by 24%. And the share of non-fossil fuel energy in total energy consumption to increase to 20%. And these are demanding targets, obviously set out by a government that has a degree of central planning capability. Um, But it's difficult to see these types of targets amongst major Western nations. A lot of people are focused on the fact that China has issued a net zero a uh, 2060 target, as opposed to a net zero 2050, but the Chinese would contend that that target is a real target that they know they can make and can improve upon. So we could have some debates about that. When it turns to America, well, that that, that is certainly very interesting. And it's been most encouraging, obviously, that the Biden administration has seen fit to rejoin uh, the, uh, the Paris Agreement and that uh, Joe Biden had in late April a climate summit, and that we're anticipating active US participation again in COP26. So all of that is good. Um, Don't forget in both countries, as I said, there've been these regional schemes as well. So whilst the US is probably uh, quite some way away from uh, having a a, a national emissions trading system, nevertheless, the regional ones could potentially fill in the gap in a way that they have been doing in China so far. And Finally, I, I think in the American sense, oddly, and we may come to this later, one of the nicest things I've seen has been the US setting a fairly realistic target of $51 as the cost of emitting a tonne of carbon, so moving into ranges that most economists would agree seem about right.
0: Michael, I know we were going to talk about um, the carbon pricing during our discussion, but you know, since you mentioned it, I think it's probably worthwhile covering it now because you've you've mentioned the mission trading schemes um a couple of times obviously with the chinese and, and and americans and obviously in europe we've had a, a version of the thing for a couple of decades now i mean i suppose um you know uh, we're both economists so we understand that you know maybe uh, regulation is a second best solution and um, one of the you know the economists will turn around his say and carbon pricing has always been the first best solution um, what do you think, you know, what, what views do you have on the practicalities and impacts of, of, a, of a carbon pricing you know, globally uh, to, to, the, to the cause, as it were?
1: Well, I, I'm a big fan of carbon pricing and it, it has had a uh, slightly problematic history. But I'm a big fan of it because I think it's the one thing, if, if I had to choose one thing that would make it work, and what are the other things we could do? Well, we'll possibly be talking about uh, ESG targets or measurement later. We could be talking about general awareness and and we could have a debate. But the carbon pricing regime idea goes really back to the 1980s when a bunch of policy wonks in America were looking at how to handle sulfur dioxide emissions. And they came up with an idea that tradable permits for sulfur dioxide emissions uh, would, would work. So the government would auction these permits and they would auction fewer permits each year. And people would be able to direct investment towards those areas, which would have the greatest effect because they would need fewer permits and they could sell those permits to other people who wanted to continue with older plant. Well, this was launched by the Environmental Protection Agency in 1992. And the initial targets were something like a 25% reduction over 10 years. And in fact, in four years, I think they reduced by 50%. It was something outrageously positive. And the Americans went to uh, Kyoto. Kyoto was held in 97, and the debates began in 96. And they went with the idea that we are going to use this approach to carbon. It worked so well in sulfur dioxide. Let's do it in carbon. And that was the agreement in Kyoto. We would use carbon pricing uh, to solve things. And carbon pricing is hard. Uh, It's a real number, and it has real costs. And I'll come back to that maybe in a moment. Anyway, um, as is well known, the US sort of stood everybody up at the altar by not signing the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, Europe, on the other hand, decided it wanted to continue. And here in the city of London, a group of us in 1999 uh, began a shadow trading market. And that shadow trading market, when the EU realized it needed to meet a deadline of April, 2005, that shadow trading market rolled up to become effectively uh, the infant that led to the EU ETS. And that ETS was launched in April, 2005. But um, sadly, in late 2007, uh, the price of carbon crashed. When it was launched in 2005, the governments of Europe all swore that they would try and keep the price per tonne of carbon at about €25 a tonne or higher, and the price crashed to less than a a euro a tonne. And it was a very simple reason it crashed. Too many permits were being issued. The governments of Europe were effectively lying about the number of permits in issue. And the market did worked perfectly, supplied grotesquely, exceeded demand, and the price collapsed. It languished there, really, until about three years ago, uh, when uh, some, some people would say, when, when Britain left the system. Uh, but what's happened now is the carbon price is now back up quite substantially at around €40 Euros a ton. Now, it only covers uh, approximately 40% of EU emissions, but that's still quite good. It's largely the power plants. Um, but what's intriguing about it, of course, is if you look at what we're trying to achieve, uh, we're trying to say we're going to go to net zero. If we say that the price is, say, 40 euros a ton, some would argue it should be a bit higher than that, maybe 80, if it covers 100% of the system, but take 40 euros, multiply that by the seven or eight tons of carbon emitted uh, by European, and you're looking at approximately 300 euros per person per year. Uh, and this, I think, is the kind of the, uh, the the black elephant in the room here, where people not wanting to talk about that and that's 300 euros a person that's uh, 1200 euros a family of uh, four um it could as i say be double that it could be 600 it could be 2400 politicians are still not able to speak honestly about that but that will truly change behavior in a way that we've seen the behavior change uh, due to COVID-19. Uh, everybody working from home, massive change. has dropped carbon emissions globally by about 6.5%, and that's nowhere near what we need to achieve, and we're likely to go back to normal in some form where that will rise. So big fans of carbon pricing realize the enormous cost there, but we also realize the enormous political difficulty in selling that because it is such a significant cost that people want to avoid talking about.
0: Yeah, I'll just um... Did the bank of the fag packet maths for me. And I think that works out at around 15 million per annum in Guernsey is, uh, for our population of 60,000. So hopefully I've times by my zeros correctly. Um, and you're absolutely right. I think that sort of level of cost, people would be very incentivised uh, to abate um, the, the emissions. And um, But you're absolutely right in terms of, you know, talking about the cost. I've read many uh, various different papers in recent weeks talking about the UK's hidden cost of its um, you know, net zero targets and that, you know, nobody's actually being front and direct about it. Um, but I think we'll leave politics again to the side for a moment. But I mean, again, I, I completely share, uh, your support of the uh, you know, carbon pricing, I think, it was, it was a great shame at the end of the 90s. Uh, we seemed to be um, going completely in the right direction, and you know it, it didn't quite work. I, I actually was at, um lived in Hull at the when you're talking about the period of the, the European ETS, uh, and I really we, in, in Hull we were looking at um, having to really change our investment profile because of the carbon uh, the trading. But then obviously with the price, it, it turned out to be something that you know. It was Water Orthodox Bank to, to us at the time. Anyhow, um, I do want to come back to it actually because it is the era of COP twenty six, and you did mention Kyoto. So there's there again, there's my segue and link there. Um, cross border flows, you know, mobilisation of capital. It's great to see that for, you know this is uh, green finance is a, is a key pillar of COP twenty six this year, and particularly private finance or private capital, I should say. Um, Actually, if you read the IPCC reports, cross-border flows um, is the one area of of, of capital that is is weakest, um, both generally, but also in the the sustainable finance area. Um, And the idea that channeling investment to the countries that need it most, obviously, with the the contributions, the 100 billion uh, contribution, the, the commitments that have been asked for previously, and I think we're all falling a bit short on that. What do you think, um, sort of specialist centres like uh, like Guernsey and others, can you know maybe do to help you know that agenda and help mobilise those cross border capital flows? Any thoughts?
1: Oh, definitely. Um- When we look at international financial centers, IFCs, if you will, they have been fundamental to so many other areas of cross-border capital flows. Uh, And uh, my, my normal way of expressing this to people who sort of see this as all kind of offshore finance and shady accounts and dodgy stuff is sticking to the corporate world. Without IFCs, it would be very difficult to do many international deals. And the reason for that is that Western governments have made it extremely complicated to look at things for corporates like residents, particularly tax residents. And I have participated in a number of deals. In fact, I've used Guernsey as an offshore center, as well as Jersey, the Isle of Man, and Gibraltar. Uh, And the reason for that is not to evade tax. These companies pay as much tax, and maybe a small timing difference, but they will pay the tax ultimately. But it's that we have a single center which has bilateral contracts with all of the international agents needed to do the deal. So if you're a French pharmaceutical trying to purchase an American pharmaceutical and build a Malaysian plant and you need a special purpose vehicle, you'll locate it in an IFC so that each of those three parties has an agreement with a flexible uh, unit at the center your special purpose vehicle, and you can get on and get the work done. Um, And this is absolutely essential to all cross-border capital flows. Now, what I like about Guernsey is you've been doing this for years, but you're, you, because of your focus on green finance, you're becoming a bit of a you know, a green pocket battleship in this space, really looking at developing uh, people's understanding of how to set up these deals, but also in, in just injecting uh, some, of, some of the specialist areas of green finance. Um, now, in all of this, you know cross-border capital flows are, are going to be very, very important I would suggest that they would be bolstered uh, by having a carbon price, but they'll also be uh, needing IFC vehicles to handle things like subsidy arrangements. So at what point is a green subsidy in country or not in country? And the flexibility that IFCs give you in terms of structuring those special purpose vehicles is going to be essential to that. We're also going to be seeing a lot of intellectual property being created. And again, IFCs have been fundamental in things like patent boxes. So there's just a tremendous uh, number of areas where I believe IFCs can help ease the flow of cross-border capital, make it, and and really the thing that you're doing is make it a simpler process. Uh, And that's what IFCs contribute.
0: I appreciate you calling us a pocket battleship there, Michael. I mean, it's, uh, it's, I think it's for one for us with good enough memories to remember what pocket battleships were. But um, I do appreciate that because I, I recall having the conversation with you on, 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 your, um, on your webinar a few weeks back. Um, and actually the, the way that we've we've gotten to that place is through international engagement and you know an engagement with partners you know particularly with the UN through the UN's FC4S but also Swiss sustainable finance the UK's green finance institute and, and basically that collaborative approach to what is um, you know an urgent priority so um, you know and I completely concur with you about the the frictionless uh, costs of, of setting up in someone like Guernsey it's um, I get I get perplexed looks when I explain as an economist that all taxation has a deadweight loss. So therefore, you only want to tax one income stream just the once and tax it fully the once. But um, don't try and do it many more times. And people just look at you with a glazed look when you talk about deadweight losses. But uh, anyway, that's probably for another, uh, another another time in another conversation. But keeping to COP26, um, like I said, you know, Mark Carney went, uh, made a big uh, when he made the announcement earlier in February um, of the agenda last year, putting private finance or private capital, uh, you know, fixed it on the agenda. Obviously, here in Gander, we think of private capital as not uh, as private wealth, as alternative instruments of you know, uh, you know in, in alternative assets. Um, obviously, Mark was talking about it in terms of the. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the non-public sphere. But for us, um, you know, unlocking private capital. Uh, you know, the, the owners of serious high net worth. Um, you know, and we've called, called talked about this on this podcast about billionaires. You know, sort of um uh, unlocking. Uh, you know, being the champions to the cause. Do you How do you understand that role? You know, the, the actual private private wealth. You know, and in how can we? You know, has it got a role to play, or is is it really a public finance uh, theatre?
1: Well, it's it's almost adamantly not a a public finance uh, uh, area. Uh, Many years ago, the UNFCCC made a statement along the lines, which is broadly right, that uh, we were looking at about uh, 86% of the money would have to come from private finance and 14% from the public sector, to which my remark would merely be uh, public sector money is sort of irrelevant. If I get the 86%, I can probably figure out where to get the 14 percent? If I get the 14 percent, not the 86 percent, I'm nowhere near meeting my target. Uh, and what is that target? Well, the targets do vary a little bit, and I I do have some criticisms of a few. But Nick Stern set it at roughly 1 percent of GDP per annum, and then adjusted that quite quite rapidly. I think in 2008 up to about 2 percent. And the numbers that I gave you earlier of about uh, 80 euros a ton uh, per person are roughly just short of that. Uh, 2% mark as well. So we're we're looking at some very, very significant sums of money. Uh, but when we look at private finance, I, I would at least draw three different areas of distinction. Uh, the first is about uh, basically the, the equity investment. The second is about debt. And the third is about insurance. And these three are often not considered in the round. A lot of people think it's about going to the private sector. Getting them to give you money to build a plant or or to 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 initiate some type of mitigation or adaptation and that's that. Well, it doesn't work like that. You know, real people want to make money on their investments, uh, and so you have to find a way that they can make cash. Uh, now, even within that area of investment, it's a rich area. You alluded to some of it. So we've got a straightforward investment of pension funds, uh, the insurance side of of investment, asset management, high net worth individuals, sovereign wealth funds, private equity. So there's a whole bunch of people prepared to invest in projects, Uh, and that I think is a a fairly straightforward thing for most people to understand. Uh, The second area, though, is the debt markets. And this is people taking loans, so not not the equity side. And in this area, there are, in the private capital sense, what what you're looking at here is the green bond market. Um, You and I might talk as well about the government bond market uh, at some point also. And then finally, you've got insurance. And insurance, uh, again, is very, very important in a lot of these p- projects. So there's project insurance, construction insurance. Uh, there's an emerging areas, area of policy risk insurance. So these are all insurances to help uh, move these projects forwards by taking effectively slivers off the balance sheet that are causing problems. Uh, and I, I believe that insurance is, is much underrated in this sector. I'll just give you another reason where people sort of miss it. Uh, Guernsey is quite famous for its protected cell captives. These are captive insurance vehicles that many companies would like to run, really to handle things like decommissioning of plant. Um, otherwise, I'm making a profit that gets taxed. What I'd like to do is to say, I'm running a plant for 25 years, but after 25 years, I'm gonna to have to break it apart and you know, socially responsibly recycle it, uh, but to do that I need to put money aside every year and governments have a tendency to tax that money to the point it doesn't exist and PCCs and other vehicles allow companies to do set asides that allow them to act more responsibly over the long term. So those three areas, equity, debt uh, and insurance are going to be absolutely key. Uh, at COP26, and I'm hoping because it is a rich area that we can see a better meeting of minds between the political side of life and private finance.
0: Interesting, you mentioned uh, insurance there, uh, Michael, because I thought we saw we announced yesterday that we'd um, uh, created an ESG framework for insurers here in Guernsey. We've been it took us the best part of a year, and our insurance sector is signed up to the uh, UN Sustainable Insurance Principles, uh, and the gfsc is a member of the sustainable insurance forum so for us it's a you know it's an important area um, and to your point you know that it's across the piece it's different types of financial instruments i think people uh, have a tendency to to forget so it's good that you raise the, the insurance and particularly the captive um insurance model um which you know is an international model but um there are some jurisdictions where it is uh, more favored than others you mentioned bonds though, and actually you uh you used to talk about sovereign wealth bonds and, and such. And um I, I will ask you about your, your thoughts on this. I remember when um, Rishi Sunak um you know, announced that the UK was going to do a, a green bond, and I think the FT went net, you know, and sort of was pretty unimpressed. And we, we had a conversation, I think it was at the beginning of the year.
1: Um
0: your thoughts how that sort those sorts of bonds could be improved, perhaps?
1: Cer yes, certainly. Um, just before I do so, I, I think your announcement of your ESG program for insurers is, is again, another example of the pocket battleship. Uh, you, know, you know, why would somebody be going to a small island in the Channel Islands? It's because you're showing leadership in this space and, you know, helping the global insurance industry. So well done you. you. Um, Meanwhile, on on, on sovereign bonds, yes, uh, it was an underwhelming response to Rishi Sunak, and I think the UK government was a little surprised on that, but I I can't speak for them. But uh, for good reason. Uh, Firstly, um, it was the... Tw- it was well after the 20th other sovereign had issued. So the UK was certainly not leading the pack, although it, it is leading COP26. And so I think that was the the, the first item there. The second item was it's what, what we call a use of proceeds bond. So go- governments are terrible at hypothecating monies. uh, At the the best of times, we have things like national insurance contributions, which uh, bear no relation to uh, what they were supposed to handle. We have road taxes, supposedly on petrol. And again, the petrol price is there. Now, hypothecation of taxes is something that most economists don't like. Uh, because it's very hard to tie a government's hands. So this government's saying, well, if you give us x, x billions, we will spend it on this range of projects. Well, if they were good projects, why didn't you spend it anyway? Uh, and the money that you're getting is no cheaper because the government uh, obviously can issue or sorry uh, can issue debt at the at the cheapest price around. So it was an underwhelming response um, because really what the government was seeking was a marketing oomph uh, by saying it was green. Now, there is a movement going, and it started in the private sector on the continent about four four years ago. And these are policy performance bonds. They're also called performance incentive bonds, uh, sustainability-linked bonds uh, or ESG-linked bonds. And this is where corporates have said, we don't want all of the certification uh, for the boys and girls and the accounting firms and all this. We just want to meet, meet our targets. And so they're setting targets. For example, we will reduce our carbon emissions by uh, 50% in seven years. And they're paying interest if they fail to meet that target. So their interest rate goes up if they fail to meet the target. And a discussion that's been going around the city for 15 years or more has been, why don't governments issue such policy performance bonds? Now, the rise of uh, net zero 2050 as a target that everybody seems to aspire to gives a measure of some commonality. So you could take, and I'll take the, the UK rather than Guernsey, which I don't know very well. But in the UK, we could say, what we're going to do is we're going to be net zero in, uh, in, in 2050. That implies a 3.45% reduction every year. Uh, and we will just straight line that. So two years from now, if we've gone down 3.45 plus 3.45, so you know, uh, we, you know, we've gone down, you know, roughly seven percent, then, then that's great, and the bond pays no interest. But if we've only gone down five percent, then the bond would pay two percent interest, uh, and you can see where this works very, very similar, to, in fact, to an inflation-linked bond. Then uh, this type of commonality were it to come forward at COP, would be one government's really putting money where their mouth was Two, giving a a market measure of their performance um three uh, really allowing people to hedge against policy risk Uh, one of the things uh, that somebody works in green finance uh, i don't like is in fact oddly green finance we don't have specialist finance for shoelaces or for supermarkets or anything else what distinguishes green is the immense policy risk on government um, as, as was exhibited in uh, them not keeping up the uh, ETS price until recently, as exhibited in turnarounds on solar, on nuclear, um, on forestry policies, on onshore wind, and now offshore wind, et cetera. So government policy risk is huge in green and larger than it is in other sectors, and that's probably why it gets its moniker. In fact, in, in our surveys of the Gold Green Finance Index, what's foremost on practitioners' minds in this space far and away above everything else, is government policy risk. Um, so if we can remove that policy risk through firm carbon pricing, through being able to demonstrate that governments have actually also uh, got their uh, you know their fingers on, on, on the wire for 29 years, uh, then I think we could make green finance far more effective to the point that we just don't talk about it anymore. It's normal.
0: It'd be nice to get to that day sooner rather than later. And, but, and, and the, you, your thoughts on that sustainable link bond, um, you've, you, we've talked about this before, and um, it's something that would, you know, it would be nice if we could see in Guernsey in the passage of time, it's, what probably holds us back is uh, our lack of borrowing, which is uh, uh, a bit of an irony there. But, um, you know, I think the, the scale of the investments that you're talking about that we, we recognize that we might need to be looking at. Uh, different ways of financing. So um, hopefully that's a conversation we'll have here on this island in, in, in the very near future. Um, so, and again, and Michael, thank you ever so much for saying such nice things about uh, Guernsey as a pocket battleship and, and insurance and, 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 the, and the ESG framework. We'll come to ESG in a moment, I think. But, um, I mean, you know this quite well, but most people are probably unappreciative of the fact that we're, you know, number one European uh, centre for captives um, and number one in, you know, private equity in Europe, uh, especially this administration, that is. And so we, we do have quite a broad spectrum of specialist areas, but you know quite a broad spectrum where we're quite a, a leader in that particular niche or field. And one of those uh, fields that we've been looking at here, uh, obviously you talked about equity investment, we talked about debt, we talked about insurance, and I look at equity. Um, our, you know, our specialism is you know is private equity. We um, we actually launched the, the world's first regulated regime for investment funds, the Guernsey Green Fund, a couple of years back, and we've got many funds in that in that regime now you know large london listed small uh, farmland funds um you know diversified assets but we also you know recognize that that's a regulatory regime is one thing but um, a guidance and help uh, to the market um, is useful so we published our uh, principles for private equity last year uh, and tim haymes the ex uh, director general of the BBC I was very impressed and uh, effusive about that those principles with their simplicity one of the things that we're, we've recognized is, is, and you talked about it again in a minute, so I'm bringing equity and risk into the same conversation here. In that we found the penny dropping very quickly in the last sort of year, eighteen months, where particularly in the, the PE industry, if you've got a, a you know an asset life cycle of five to seven years, where you'll buy it and then you know improve it and then sell it on five to seven years time, people are recognizing that um, there's, you know, there's, there's there's climate risk to be factored in there into, and bringing forward. Uh, or discounting that risk into current prices. And if you get that wrong, uh, you're gonna be held, left holding the the baby um in five, seven years' time. We've been looking at perhaps that maybe looking at extending that life cycle uh because uh, matching the supply of assets that are you know 20, 30 year assets with an investment with a, with matching it with a, a shorter time horizon, can you can you do anything there? In terms of structuring and vehicles, do you have any thoughts or opinions on any of this? You know how that um, you know, this particular part of the market can uh, be better exploited to the to the cause.
1: Well, Andy, I thought you knew me better than that. Of course, I have an opinion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I think I make three points. I, 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 firstly, there's a big presumption around the world that there's been a move off of of open capital markets traded on exchange, if you will. Uh, and that's certainly been turning up in a lot of numbers, and there are many causes of that. But the requirements for listing a company have gone up and up and up, and therefore the costs have gone up and up and up. And uh, so people are uh, have been showing over the last several years a propensity to look towards private equity. Now, what private equity wants is something it can turn around, or something that has a particularly good cash flow. And so a lot of what you might call brown or black investments, which generate good cash, uh, have moved into the private markets because they just don't want the difficulties associated with being on the public markets. Activist shareholders, problems, relations, transparencies, disclosures. If they go private, they can can deal with that. We've had similar bouts, by the way. Um, I I might point to tobacco companies, for example. Uh, Many of those also also went private over the years. Just, it it wasn't worth it. But cash is cash, and so private equity, sovereign wealth funds and all, uh, high net worth individuals will like that kind of thing. Interesting announcement in the FT this morning, where uh, the Swiss bankers are finding that their high net worth individuals are like, no, we don't want ESG. What we want is return on our money, <laughs> um, and if it's ESG, that's nice. Uh, so you're seeing that, that that that's kind of the first element that people do want to return on their money, and that private equity could, in many ways, I, I wouldn't say it's being bad, but it will take the assets that others don't want if they're if they're underpriced. The second area, uh, though, is that uh, private equity can change its mind. Um, So we had a program in the London Accord uh, and Long Finance back in 2006 called Burn It All, where we began explaining to large holders of assets that there was no way that they would be able to burn these vast reserves of coal and oil in the time available, which is looking at 100 years. And a number of uh, clients of my firm uh, two particularly large ones, in fact, one with $9 billion in assets and the other with about $11 billion uh, in brown assets, actually began shifting. They would go to people and say, I have an asset that's about as equivalent to yours. Uh, my asset will take uh, you know, 50 years to deplete. You've got an asset worth 20 years. I'll swap it with you. Um, and they were basically doing time shifting to bring forward uh, those sorts of things that will burn. I think the last bit, too, and this is where things like net zero 2050 are very helpful. Uh, it may sound a bit crass, but every time I buy an asset from somebody, I'm betting against them. And every time I sell an asset, I'm betting against them. And private equity firms with these five to seven year holding patterns have to look and see who's the greater fool that I'm going to be able to sell this to. And if they see a general tightening, uh, then then they begin to pay attention to it. And so uh, remembering that 2050 is 29 years away or 28 and a half, Suddenly, this five to seven year horizon begins to matter. And so they're looking ahead and saying, hang on, I'm going to be selling into an environment which, if all these things really are tightening up, uh, that environment's going to be tighter for me to sell it uh, if it's environmentally harmful. Um, so that timing is helping and those targets are are oddly helping focus the minds on those timeframes. And I think we'll be seeing really over the next three to five years uh, quite a number of PE firms looking at that and again doing the similar time shifting that was being done 15 years ago on, 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 on brown coal.
0: Yeah, I mean it's um, some really good points there about, you know, about the about the the price of assets and um, so I don't need to be really uh, um, so what I call off, you know traditional views you know talking about uh, a greater fall and it's almost like returns are a you know an old fashioned concept. You're absolutely right there that um, the you know return on capital and wealth preservation, wealth accumulation is is still the the um, sort of number one motivator uh, for, you know, f- for people. Uh, we find that ourselves in, in, in our own research that we've published on family offices. And you know, often I, f- I find myself feeling like I've got some sort of minority opinion uh, trying to remind people that you know, at the end of the day a return is still uh, you know, necessary. And I'm going f- to sort of nearly finish off now, but I do want to cover off and move into a different area. You talked about the cost of capital. Uh, we, we, we've laughed about the, Gold, the Fringe and Arc B sort of activities in the past um you know where pointless cost is layered onto things i don't want to be uh prejudging but i want to talk about maybe one area that you've got some interesting views on which is esg we've flagged it up a few times and there's there's different variants of esg um and i just wanted to really um ask you if you think that it's a it's something that helps the agenda, or does it? You know, does it? Is it overcomplicating what is should be a fairly simplistic agenda for green? Um, does it make the process harder for companies, or so, you know, or, or or what? I suppose. What's what's your views, uh, Michael, on ESG and green, sustainable? You know, that whole. It seems you can't move at the moment that everyone's an ESG, you know, advocate.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, uh, it's probably be useful to s- explain what, what, what we're shooting at here. Um, ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, was a sort of a catch-all term for companies paying attention to things other than uh, purely profit. And it's quite an old term, uh, certainly over a quarter of a century old. Um, it's come, however, to mean, to some degree, ESG reporting. Uh, and there have been a, a huge number of initiatives around the world uh, on f- having companies report these effectively extra financial numbers. But in some senses, there are two theories here that, that, that are, are worth exploring. The first is that why are they extra financial? So why am I reporting carbon rather than saying, well, let's go back to my earlier example, I spent X amount on carbon because it's 40, 40 euros a ton to emit it. Instead what people are saying is, well, I emit carbon, but I don't pay for it. so. Let me report it. So you've got to ask as a person in finance, why aren't we bringing these things into the financial system using costs? (laughs) Uh, An example I love giving is Americans uh, dropped about 10 years ago, their driving dropped by 4% uh, per capita, believe it or not, um, missed by many people. Was this because the Sierra Club was taking out ads? No, it's because the price of petrol or gas at the pump rose by 32%. So if something costs, people will change their behavior. So you got to ask, why is reporting it going to change your behavior if it's not costing you? The second thing is that supposedly these ESG targets will raise the cost of capital for companies. I participated in a lot of marches against apartheid in the 70s. And we presumed that by uh, protesting, our universities would take their endowments elsewhere, raising the cost of capital for South African companies, and hey, presto, apartheid would be ended. Of course, that didn't happen at all that way, uh, and never would have. So the cost of capital argument is quite an interesting one, but it's very, very theoretical. It's very indirect. It's that uh, analogy of you know uh, trying to push a piece of wet spaghetti through a keyhole, um, uh, to me. Now, that doesn't mean that ESG is useless, it doesn't mean that people's hearts aren't in the right place, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it has led to, um, I think the economists called it an alphabet soup uh, of ESG. And we have people talking about new standards and new targets. And the just brought out another taxonomy where it, it classifies elements. So why aren't we just saying, here's company A, here's company B. Company B, wow, they're not very profitable, why is that? Well, it's because they pollute and they have to pay all that money. Oh, well, then they are idiots, aren't they? I'll invest in company A. So I prefer the simpler, harder solution uh, to a lot of the CSG stuff. And what's happened you know, at the moment is we, we've had, what was it, Gillian Tett then spoke about not green, not brown, but olive finance. Um, and it's just creating a lot of jobs, as I said earlier, uh, for the boys and the girls in the accountancy firms who will rate all of these things before, say, a bond is issued. And this has led, in in many cases, to people getting uh, green bonds, which are at a nominally slightly lower price because there is a, a group of investors who would like to buy ESG, um, and that's fair enough. Um, But then the cost of making the bond wrapped up and provably compliant in ESG means the company effectively winds up over the life of the bond, getting it at about the same rate. So the nominal rate is lower slightly, but they had to pay a lot of uh, upfront costs. And what they're getting is marketing. And that's fine, but it is leading to a lot of this stuff about greenwashing. And I will say here in the City of London, particularly over the last year, a number of people have been waking up to the fact that ESG is well-intentioned, uh, but isn't going to get us there. And maybe we should be moving on, as I say, to things like harder policy performance bonds or h- harder uh, carbon pricing uh, to really get the job done.
0: I agree. And um, that was a, a very considered and careful and in you know an informed response, Michael. As as of all your answers today being. Um if I may, I'm just gonna call it call it a wrap now, I think, but I did have one final personal question, which is I'd like to ask to all my guests. Um Usually it's a format of how do you end up working in green finance, but actually listening to, the, I'm sure listeners will appreciate that you've had a long-standing involvement over many, many years, over like several decades. But if I might just ask you, uh, what was it first that drew and brought your attention to the, the green or the sustainability agenda?
1: Gosh. <laughs> I, I think as a, as a young fellow, I was quite an outdoorsy type, you know, sailing, hiking, long hikes, bicycles, everything. I loved being outdoors, still do. Um, and when I went up to Harvard, I was lucky enough to land a postgraduate research, uh, program for four years at the graduate school of design. Um, now the graduate school of design does urban planning. Uh, my, my specialty was mapping systems. And we even did some studies on, you know, for example, uh, forestation in New Hampshire, concluding, believe it or not, that, uh, by the 1970s, uh, New England was being reforested at a, at a very good rate. So I was into that kind of natural stuff. But in the very early 80s, I led a, a global mapping project called Geodat, another one called Mundocart. Um, and it was just about cartography. And my clients were the oil firms. And uh, I began to realize how environmentally concerned they were, believe it or not. Um, and maybe not about uh, carbon emissions, but certainly about uh, pollution. And we created the World Conservation Monitoring Center using the maps that uh, I had developed. Um, and it was at this point I began to see the intersection of finance and how the, how the larger oil companies were looking at and evaluating environmental costs very, very clearly. Uh, and, and trying to, to deal with it properly with what I would say was the, the, the policy side of life. And I became fascinated with it and so my whole life has been technology and finance, uh, finance and technology uh, and that has continued uh, through to the present day.
0: Well, that's fascinating um, as has indeed been actually I think we're up to we're nearly up to the hour marks I mean it's been a fascinating conversation Michael all well told, and, and frankly, one that we could have—I think—we could have carried on for the rest of the, the rest of the day, um, but you know, time precludes us. It just remains to me to say to, to thank you, Michael, and uh, you know, and I think listeners will get really a sense of just how deep—not uh, just the Chinese sincerity is for green, but also how deep and broad your personal expertise is in, in this area. And it's you know, it really has come across. I think in the, in the last hour, my key takeaways, I think for me were you know, if anything, to reaffirm. The, the, the need to look at carbon pricing as a, as, as a first best policy tool and, and your belief in that, a very great exposition of its working. Um, and also how, uh, you know, that private capital uh, can actually help with the, the, the mobilisation uh, agenda. Um, and that, you know, but old-fashionedly, that, you know, return is important and that, in, you know, uh, international finance works, uh, cross-border capital flows and, and private wealth are to be there to be harnessed. Uh, which is hopefully um, what we here in Guernsey and the Guernsey Green Finance are seeking to achieve. Well, it is what we're seeking to achieve. Hopefully, it's what we, we managed to do. So once again, thank you very much, Michael. It was great to have you uh, on, on today.
1: Delighted to be here, Andy.
0: Thank you ever so much. I'm looking forward to seeing you again physically very soon. Um, so just remains to be say to our listeners that uh, to remind you that we've got quite a back catalogue now of uh, interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. You can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com. Interact with us on Twitter at gsygreenfinance and at weareguernsey. And we'll have links to Michael and Zen's social media in our show notes. So do check these out to hear more from Michael. And there is very much more to, to hear. You, know, you can register to attend our Sustainable Finance Week, presented in association with the United Nations Finance Centers for Sustainability. I think I normally just say FC4S. The event will be held live in Guernsey from 7th to the 11th of June, physically here in Guernsey, and available for streaming globally online. We'll be continuing the conversation on the importance of private capital financing sustainability. Day one of the event, will look at the broader global policy picture of public policy and mobilising private equity to the agenda. Day two will focus more on the role of private wealth and family offices uh, and the owners of of that significant private wealth. And day three will turn the attention to the insurance sector and the real world effects of climate change. So do check out our website for more details to register now. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Thank you.